So the founder of Teen Mania, Ron Luce, wrote a book entitled Live God Loud, Turning Up the God Volume and Tuning Out the World. So if I had to title today's sermon, it would be TVs, Radios, and Cell Phones. He notes that uh, tune into God, turn him up, live God loud. Just like the television stations, cell phone towers, and radio stations, that are always projecting their signals, even though we can't see them or feel them or anything like that. God is always projecting to us. God doesn't have a problem with his tuner. We have a problem a lot of times with our receivers. If we don't tune into God and turn him up and to the point that it drowns out all the worldly noise, we'll fail to hear God and we will fail in our mission of making disciples and teaching them to believe and do the things that Jesus came to set forth. In John 10, 27, it says, My sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. The Bible is the word of God. It is the voice of God. What has it been saying to you lately? Living holy and righteous allows us to tune in to God and to turn him up in our lives. So by uh, introduction, we'll start in Ephesians. Uh, basically, the book of Ephesians can be roughly divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul presents theological, positional, doctrinal truths. Chapters 4 through 6 is the practical, experiential, and outworking of Christ's life uh, through the believer. So let's see. First scripture. All right, got that one. Okay. Um, there's two realities of holiness and righteousness. The first is the positional, which is based on our position in Christ. And one time, years ago, somebody challenged me, go through the New Testament, everywhere it says, in Christ, in Him, underline that. That's a positional relationship that we have with God. There's nothing that we can do to make that happen other than to accept what Christ did for us on the cross. Um, experientially is the other reality of holiness and Righteousness, and that is based on our actions. It's what we do. So before we dig into chapter 4, let's look at Ephesians uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 3. It says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So this is talking about the positional. What's already true due to our position in Christ when we trust that Christ's life and perfect righteousness and holiness can be and is imputed to us due to his death penalty for our sins. And it talks about that in Romans 3.24. How being justified, we are made holy and righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. After a short greeting, Paul gets right to the point. He started praising God for the great spiritual blessings that we already have in Christ. And this is the theme throughout Ephesians chapter 3. And it just really, in, you know, God is so good the way he works. You know, some of the things, songs that we sang already today about who we are in Christ and the position we have in that. And Tyson's prayer, um, you know, is just, it just, God confirms his word, so it's, it's good. So the phrase, uh, who hath blessed us, is the aorist tense, and I'm not an English scholar by any means, um, but what that means 
is there was a point in the past when all these blessings were obtained and given to us. Paul was describing what was what is already ours. These are not blessings to be sought after, but rather blessings to be discovered and enjoyed. We who have put our faith in Christ are not headed to a victory. We are coming from a victory that's already accomplished. We don't need to beg and plead with God to give us what he's already given to us. And so as we get into the word and meditate on the word and the scripture, allow God to uh, reveal to us those things that all already ours. In heavenly places carries the idea of in the spiritual realm. In Christ, we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings. Somebody say all. all. How much is all? all. It's all, right? I mean, that, that, we could stop right there and probably have a whole bunch of sermons and things for months. What does that mean? We've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And I know there's a rub. Well, how come I don't see it in my life? Now we'll get there. Um, These things are now spiritual realities. Our spiritual selves are already complete. As we believe and act in faith, these spiritual blessings become physical realities. Faith is what we use to appropriate things that are in the spiritual to the physical. Paul has been describing the glorious things that are ours in Christ in the first three chapters the end of chapter 3, he prayed for a revelation of these truths to come to the Ephesians, which would make them have all the fullness of God manifest in them. So again, understanding these truths, getting that into the physical so that it manifests in our lives. And that's what Paul was uh, praying for at the end. In uh, Ephesians three nineteen through 20, the message translation says, Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know. Far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. So we obtain this revelation to the degree that we meditate on it until it becomes real in our lives. All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Have you found it? If you haven't, then just look on with your neighbor because you probably won't find it. Ephesians chapter 4 is talking about the experientially. So we've already talked about the positional. How, you know, what we have in Christ based on what Christ did for us. There's nothing that can change that. Uh, nothing that can take that away. But the experientially is how we uh, live, what we do, how we interact with our fellow man. Um, so now therefore, in verse 1, it says, Because all the goodness of God... Paul is urging the Ephesians to live a life totally committed to God because of all these good things in chapters 1 through 3. He's saying, you guys got all this stuff. Spiritually, everything's been given to you. What are you going to do with it? And so in, cha- in verse chapter 4, he's talking about this is what we should do. Many people serve the Lord through the negative motivation of fear, but Paul used the positive motivation of love to get people committed to God. It's better to serve the Lord out of fear than not serve Him at all. But in 1 John 4.18 it says, Fear hath torment. Those who do not move beyond fear into love as their motivation for serving the Lord will be tormented with the fear that they may not be doing enough. Satan, the accuser of the brethren, will always use this to condemn us. You're not doing enough. You're not good enough. 
right? Those who walk in love, though, serve the Lord out of thankfulness for what God has already done. Those who serve out of fear are trying to get God's blessing or to avert his judgment. The motivation of love rests in what's already been done. The motivation of fear is predicated on the assumption that the verdict has yet to be decided. So you always have this, I'm just not sure, feeling. Love rests, fear frets. Further on in verse 1, it talks about being worthy. Worthy is defined as having worth, merit, or value, honorable, or deserving. Now, no one can be truly deserving of what Jesus has done for us or what he has called us to do. This is talking about honoring the Lord through our actions. So as we live holy and righteous, we are honoring the Lord. Verse 3 says, um, let's see, I think, yeah, all right. In, in verse 3, it talks about endeavoring to make a conscientious or concerted effort toward a given end, an earnest attempt to exert oneself, to make it one's duty. The unity of the Spirit has not been kept in the body of Christ. And in fact, there's very little unity among believers today. We are strived towards unity, but not be overwhelmed at the problem. Notice that this scripture doesn't tell us to produce unity. It says to keep the unity. All Christians have already been joined to each other through the body of Christ. And God the Father sees us all as his children. Just like Tyson said today, we're the body. Even though a pastor is away, you know, we're still a body. All the divisions among Christians, the different denominations, things like that are made by man, not by God. We are now one in spirit. We just need to experience this unity here on earth. There's a quote, and I don't know who said it, but it came off of a DC talk CD. So it says, the number one cause of atheism today is Christians. They confess Christ with their mouths, but deny him by their lifestyles. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. In the next few verses, Paul gives seven arguments to prove that we are truly one in Christ. In chapter or verse 5, it talks about one baptism. There's many baptisms that the Bible talks about, but the one that Paul is talking about here is when the Holy Spirit takes every person who's truly saved and place them into the body of Christ at the moment of salvation. Let's go ahead and skip to verse 17. In verse 17, we should not live like unsaved people. The Greek word here is lifestyle. If we think and live like the world, we'll get the same results of the world. That's why a lot of the churches see the same problems that the world sees. You know, divorce rate of 50%, depression, uh, all those things. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The message translation says, Don't become so well-adjusted well to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Tune in. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you. Quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. In verse 22, it talks about the old man. 
in every other place in the New Testament, when the Scripture talks about the old man, it's already the death of the old man. It's already taken place. Putting off the old man means turning from the habits and lust which our old man deposited on us. That old sin nature is gone, but we still have habits and things like that. Paul is speaking of our former manner of conduct, not uh, saying, don't go on living as if that old self was still alive. Verse 23, it talks about the spirit, which is, um, the Greek word for that is attitude. It also means mental disposition. Not only do we have to reprogram our minds with new information, but we have to allow these truths to change our attitudes. Our perspectives have to change. We have to repent. You know, a lot of times, I have a hard time sometimes when people talk, start talking about repent, repent, because I think it's just one of those things that we like to use, a buzzword or something as Christians. In the business world, it would be a paradigm shift. Right? We just need to change the way we think. Not be moved by our physical senses. Um, you know, there's a time and place for those things. But I think we need to develop a sixth sense, which is spiritual sensitivity. Uh, you see some of that in uh, the Bible. We'll talk about that later. So not we have not only to know these truths, but meditate on them until our outlook and dispositions have been renewed to God's way of thinking. So living righteous and holy, it helps us. helps us tune into God, uh, but it's not enough. So we're going to take a little rabbit trail here and go to uh, Mark. In Mark chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, there's an example of what happens if we fail to meditate on the truths of God. So... To condense this all down, basically Jesus fed thousands with fish and loaves. You guys remember the story. Twice. Then he makes the disciples get in the boat. Now these guys were fishermen by trade. And they knew to watch the weather. Some of you guys know how to do this. Especially some of the elderly people. <laughs> You'll talk to them. They'll be like, storm's coming. I'm like, how do you know? You've been watching the weather? No. Just no. They can sense it. They can sense the change in the barometric pressure. I don't know. Um, so anyway, disciples were that way. These guys were fishermen. They sensed that a storm was coming. And in there, Jesus said, it said that he had to constrain them to get into the boat. Basically, he had to order them. They knew it didn't look good. And then they land on the other side. After going through this storm, Jesus walks on the water, calms the storm, things like that. And they get into this, get on the other side. And they encounter a boy possessed with an evil spirit. But they were unable to cast the demon out of the boy. Now, before this, the disciples had been deputized and given authority to heal the sick, raise the dead. And they'd been successful up to this point, we can assume, because this question has never come up. Why can't we do this? So you have to assume, and they even said in other parts of the scripture, it talks about how they came back praising God for all the things that they had seen and done. But they, they questioned why we're not able to do this. Now you have to assume that the disciples were living pretty holy and righteous lives, right? I mean, hanging out with God and things. Um, yeah. Jesus told them they were unsuccessful due to their unbelief. 
He rebukes them in that they had failed to consider the miracle of the fish and the loaves. They had let the physical... I don't know if anybody here has ever witnessed a seizure, but it can kind of be a little scary. They had failed to consider the miracle of the fish and loaves, let the physical overrule what they should have known in the spiritual realm to be true. They had failed to meditate on the miracles they had just witnessed. In Mark eight seventeen to 21 aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes to fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And the disciples would be like, Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. <laughs> and he said, Do you still not get it? <laughs> you know? Uh, this hardened heart. Uh, phrase occurs throughout the New Testament and um, when you study that out it's kind of like candle making I don't know if you ever had made candles or taken your kids to like Silver Dollar City we did that once and made candles so you dip this string in wax and you pull it out let it cool and then eventually it gets thicker, 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 thicker and that's what this is kind of talking about as we allow the things of the world we get less and less sensitive to the things of God. We get this thickness. So, uh, Janine and I have been doing a lot of running and I've got a real bad callus on my foot because of that friction. Been rubbing, rubbing, rubbing. Now, um, same thing, same concept, that it gets thick and then you become less sensitive. And that's what Jesus was uh, basically saying to the disciples here. Their hearts have become hardened. Nothing bad. They're just busy guys, right? Trying to survive. They're just preoccupied with the physical, not the spiritual. And therefore, they weren't effective when it came to spiritual matters. In Matthew's account, Matthew 17, 20 to 21, the disciples are rebuked for their little faith. All they needed was a mustard seed, right? Jesus said, all you need is the size of mustard seed. Now, the Greek word for this isn't, it's kind of a poor translation in the NIV. It doesn't mean little faith. Rather, it means weak or deluded. Impotent is another word for it. Because they had too much unbelief, that weakened the faith that they did have. In Romans, it talks about how we've all been given the measure of faith. And this is another area where the devil will come around and beat you up. Well, you just don't have enough faith. If you only had more faith, you could do it. Well, in Romans, it says we've been all given the measure of faith. We've been given enough, right? We just need undiluted faith. In Mark 9.24, the father understood the problem. He said, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Because he understood that his unbelief was getting in the way. So in Matthew 17 and Mark 9, Jesus tells them that the way to get rid of their unbelief, weak faith, isn't through trying to live more holy and righteous, but it's through prayer and fasting. I don't know if we have that scripture up there or not. Matthew 17, 21. This is kind of an interesting scripture because I think a lot of times it's taken out of context or uh, translated maybe a little incorrectly. 
So he kind of basically 18, Matthew 17, 18, Jesus rebuked the demon that came out of him. The child was cured. Then the disciples said, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say, if you have the faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing, nothing, nothing. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. A lot of people translate that, that this kind of demon doesn't go out by prayer and fasting. I subscribe to you today that what he's talking about is this kind of unbelief doesn't come out by prayer, except by prayer and fasting. If Jesus isn't enough to cast out a demon, we're in trouble, right? I don't think Jesus needs my help. <laughs> I hope he doesn't. I know he doesn't. But he's talking about unbelief. This kind of unbelief does not go out except by prayer and fasting. By living righteous, living holy, spending time in prayer, some of the songs we sang this morning. You know, as we pray and as we worship God, it builds our faith. It gets rid of unbelief. So what are we to do when we pray and fast? Meditate on God's Word, right? Tune in God. As we're meditating, as we're praying, as we're fasting, we're trying to block out the noise of the world trying to tune into God to see what He has to say to us, seeking to understand, getting revelation of what we already have to the point to where spiritual things are more real than physical things. If you remember in the Old Testament, Elisha and his servant, they were surrounded by the Syrian army. The servant was starting to panic. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. Help him to see that those that are with us are more than those that are against us. So the opposite of faith is unbelief. In Romans four eighteen to 20, Abraham, who considered not his own body, but rather did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Faith in God's promises appropriate spirit, appropriates spiritual realities into physical realities. Abraham believed, had faith in God, and it was credited to him. You can continue to live being busy, keeping up with the Joneses, Live like the rest of the world, not protecting yourself from negative influences. Sometimes we have to turn the TV off. Sometimes we have to be careful what news we listen to. There is not very many good, not very much good news on the TV anymore. You can continue to do all that and not take every thought that's contrary to the Word of God. Take, not take time to meditate on the things of God. God will still love you. You'll still go to heaven. You'll probably get there sooner. But <laughs> if you don't, the spiritual truths will never become a reality for you in the spiritual realm or in the physical realm. The Bible talks about it and we pray that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. In earth, it's on heaven it's done, right? How do we get that here on earth? The first part is meditating, understanding it, believing that it's true. If you want to live a victorious life uh, and really be able to help your fellow man, you need to meditate on God's word and consider not the physical, but consider the promises of God to be more true. Now, don't get off in the ditch and say, well, I'm going to drive my car by faith. You know? <laughs> we still need our five physical senses to move in this world. But when we have something that comes against us that is contrary to those, 
and we feel that God is telling us something different, we need to check that and say, maybe there's more to this. Jesus says in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives be released and the blind will see and the oppressed will be set free. Is the Spirit of the Lord on you? Everybody who's confessed that Jesus is Lord, and we already read, the Holy Spirit comes at, at baptism. We're baptized into the body of God. We are given the same Spirit that Jesus had. So the Spirit of the Lord is on you. It may not have become a reality yet. That's something that maybe you need to tune in, meditate on, think about. If it is, and I think it is, we can bring good news to the poor as well. Proclaim release to the captives, open blind eyes, and set free the oppressed. It is the Spirit that empowers us to do these things in order to be a blessing to our fellow man. Just as people flock to Jesus because he did things for them, they'll flock to us too. Then we can introduce them to the one true God, get to the real issue of them needing to be born again, to receive a heart that's sensitive to God, to receive a heart that can tune in. Last week I broke my phone. <laughs> Broken phones don't work, right? Broken phones can't receive. Broken people can't receive. Jesus needs to intervene in their lives and who better than the person that created them to fix them and say you know what I'm not going to leave you like you are I'm going to throw my old phone away <laughs> but he doesn't throw us away amen he fixes us he makes us better he gives us a new heart that's able to receive from God alright back to Ephesians 4 24 it talks about putting on the new man and it's not speaking of getting a new man, but rather letting that new self dominate our action. So we've been given a new spirit, one that's sensitive to God. Uh, likewise, putting off the old man is not speaking of still having an old man. The old man's dead. Uh, through his negative, although his negative influences still remain. You can talk to a lot of people who are psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, and things like that. Changing bad habits is hard, right? And that's what this is talking about. Um, so we need to deny those lusts that were taught to us by our old man when he was still alive. Our new man was created just like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 In our spirit, we are right now as Jesus is. 1 John 4.17 One third of our salvation is already complete. And the Bible talks about being sealed, vacuum packed. If anybody cans or freezers stuff, you know, you suck out all the air or you boil it to get all the air out, all the bad things. Our spirit is sealed. So one third of our salvation is already complete. In the spiritual realm, this is a truth. And then again, the rub. Well, how come I don't feel different? You know, this one guy he says, if you were fat before you got saved, you'd be fat after you got saved. If you were ugly before you got saved, you were ugly after you got saved. So it doesn't change the outward, but it's a positional fact in the spirit. The rest of our life is joyously spent working out our salvation and living holy and righteous. Right? Um, 
the believer's positional righteousness and holiness is not something that we grow into. We were created that way when we were born again. This righteousness and holiness is in our new spirit, which we receive from God. Experientially, we are still working out this righteousness and holiness in our actions. Not to get God's favor or to twist his arm or to get brownie points or anything like that. But just because it's the right thing to do. And we've been equipped with that. And it glorifies God when we do it. And it improves our relationship with our fellow man. I don't know if anybody's ever had bad neighbors before. But living righteous and holy will make you a good neighbor. Right? Um, it keeps us out of trouble. It keeps us from getting sick due to the effects of sin. You can go out and still get drunk if you want. But there's physical effects that that has on your body. So, um, Paul was specifying uh, in 424, he talks about true holiness. Turn to that here. So, Paul 24 says, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So if there's a true, there's also a false, right? Um, false holiness is the good that we do. And that's why in other pieces of the scripture it talks about, you know, my holiness is as filthy rags, you know. There's a purpose for those things, but it's not to impress God. We can't try to say, oh, I've been living righteous and holy so I can go to God. The only reason we can go to God in the first place is because positionally, he's made us righteous and holy. So, um, it is important to act holy, the good things that we do in our relationships with men. But we need to remember that anything other than true holiness, which is a gift of God, is inadequate when relating to God. God is a spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and in truth, true holiness. God looks at, us, looks at us through our spirit, and he deals with this based on this true holiness, which is our new man. In other words, our false holiness can't impress God. But it does keep us at peace with man, keeps us healthy. There's all kinds of benefits. Makes us more sensitive to God. Um, all right, 25. Uh, verse 25 says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Sinning against our fellow believers is the same thing as sinning against ourselves. We just shouldn't do that, right? It's pretty straightforward. Verse 26 talks about, uh, Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your uh, wrath. So this is probably another one of the most misapplied scriptures. This verse is commonly quoted as saying, the Lord knows we're just human. We're going to get mad. He just asks, just settle it before the sun goes down. Um, in other words, you can be angry as long as you don't let it last longer than one day. Yeah, I know. We, we don't think we read these things, and then we hear these things, and we don't think about them, and we just kind of take it, and it's like, oh, that's okay. But I think what Paul is saying here um, is that the new man has a godly anger. He's commanding us to have a righteous anger, which is not sin. Jesus got angry without sinning. We are commanded to hate evil. Paul is speaking of a good type of anger, a righteous indignation. 
We are um, anger which is not directed at people, but at evil. And we need to keep this righteous anger stirred up. Don't ever let it take a rest or go to sleep. And that's what it's saying when it says, don't let the sun go down on it. How many people know that we have to work at, being, at not being passive? Right? It's so easy just to kind of sit on our hands. I remember a story of a man, uh, Smith Wigglesworth. He was an evangelist and a faith healer in the early uh, 20th century. And one of his criticisms was he was um, tough and rough and kind of cold. And he tells a story in his uh, biography about um, he would preach. And the first thing he would do is say, the first person to get up on this stage will be healed. And so the first person would get up there and they'd be healed and then he'd sit down and he would teach about what had just happened and minister to people. So um, he was having a sermon, a message, and said, first one that can get up here will be healed. So these three ladies come up onto the stage and two older ladies are holding the lady who's in the middle. And she's about 60 years old and she looks like she's nine months pregnant because she has this huge tumor. And so Smith says, Smith Wigglesworth says, let her go. And the lady's like, we can't let her go. She can't stand up on her own. She'll fall. And he, he yelled at her. He said, I said, let her go. So they let her go. And she falls right on that tomb. Oh, nothing happens. He said, pick her up. So they pick her up. He said, let her go. And they're like, we're not going to let her go. And he said, let her go. I said, let her go. They let him, let her go. She falls again on that tomb. Pick her up, he says. So they pick her up. Let her go. We are not going to let her go. We refuse to let her go. Somebody in the crowd says, you beast, leave that poor woman alone. And he yells back at the guy. He said, you mind your business. I know mine. And he said, I said, let her go. They let her go. And that tumor falls out of her dress. And I think that's kind of this righteous indignation Paul's talking about. And I always thought Paul was, or Smith was talking to the ladies to let her go. I think he was speaking to that tumor. I think he was speaking to that, saying, let go of this woman. Let go of this child of God, this daughter of God that Christ died for. So we have to work at not being passive. Don't accept the status quo. Verse 29 says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it might impart grace to the hearers? This is speaking of more than just cursing or profanity. Gossip, slander, jesting, griping, complaining would also be included. All of our speech is to be edifying and to encourage people. Sometimes we say some of the stupidest stuff with a we sprinkle it with some kind of spiritual, you know, something, and it's just that's not helpful, you know? So let all of our speech be edifying and encourage others. Sarcasm too. Right? Sarcasm can hurt. And then we'll go ahead and go down to 32. It says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The basis of our ability to forgive others is the fact that we've been forgiven ourselves. But you can't give what you don't possess. If you don't possess God's forgiveness in your life, you can't give it to other people. If you haven't tuned into God and got revelation of what is yours, you can't give that to other people that need it. 
If we aren't walking in the forgiveness of God, we won't be able to minister it to others either. He forgave us before we repented or asked for forgiveness. But sometimes you're like, well, when they say they're sorry, I'll forgive them. Jesus never did. While we were yet enemies, he died for us, right? Okay, so in summary, we talked about the two different um, types of holiness and righteousness. The positional is settled. It's how we relate with God or how God relates with us. Being righteous. You are righteous. You are holy. Don't let the devil lie to you and say you're not. You're not good enough. You're not doing enough. We are righteous and holy positionally. This allows us to have fellowship with God. This is why we can go into the very throne room without like dying, right? Remember the priests in the Testament? They'd tie a rope around their leg just in case they weren't holy enough because they'd die and then they'd have to drag them out. We can go into the very throne room of God. And it's all based on what Jesus did for us, not on what we did. Nothing we do is enough. Jesus is enough. And then experientially, what we do and how we relate with man and ourselves. Again, living holy and righteous helps us to tune in to God. God's transmitter is not broke. He's always transmitting to us. Sometimes our receivers just need adjusting. So living righteous and holy is an act of worship that glorifies God. Romans 12, 1-2, 2 Thessalonians 1-10. It helps us to distinguish good versus evil. It gives no inroad to the devil in our lives. Again, if you're not out partying and drinking and drugging, then you don't. there's a whole lot of stuff you don't have to worry about, right? It also helps us to keep the unity of the body by avoiding selfish motives. We walk in love when we live righteous and holy. Helping to keep that unity of the body. Keeps us in good relationship with our fellow man. Makes us a good neighbor. It makes us more useful to God. It prepares us for any good work. 2 Timothy 2.21 It decreases our busyness. Um, because busyness gets us distracted, right? We've got so many things to do. So many things to do. It helps us to focus. These things are really important. These other things, maybe not so much. Um, by decreasing our busyness, increase our sensitivity to spiritual things. It decreases our hardness of heart. Um, that hardness of heart that can lead to unbelief. It helps to keep us from getting distracted. It's kind of like spiritual ADD, right? Attention deficit, a lot of us have it. Spiritually, probably all of us have it. <laughs> and Satan likes, likes to get us distracted. You know, get you distracted on the winds and the waves rather than, hey, you're walking on the water. You know? So as we tune our receivers in so we can be more sensitive and effective for God, glorifying him when we bring good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives, opening blind eyes and setting free the oppressed, making disciples and teaching them to do the same. Amen. So we'll have the band come forward. So I just encourage you to get into the word, find out who you are in Christ and never let the devil lie to you and tell you that you're not good enough. That's not the point. We all know we're not good enough, but because of what Jesus did, we are good enough. God looks at us and he sees Jesus. So, and then what does that mean? 
by having that position.